again and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. Let's start with the obvious. The last year has presented generational level challenges for health system governance. The law is pretty clear on their expectations of corporate governance in times of crisis, that directors have to up their games in terms of engagement and oversight. So conscientious as they are, health directors have been drinking from the proverbial fire hose for the last year when it comes to comprehending their pandemic-related duties and responsibilities. And now come additional challenges with the distribution of the vaccine and the reopening of the economy. The law also expects directors to exercise oversight over business resiliency planning for the health system. One more thing on their plates, but it's a big one. So today's conversation is intended to help board members work through these duties and to provide some practical suggestions. And to help me in this regard, I'm joined by my old friend, Jamie Orlikoff. As many of you know, Jamie is president of Orlikoff & Associates, Inc., a consulting firm specializing in healthcare governance and leadership, strategy, quality, patient safety, and organizational development. He's the National Advisor on Governance and Leadership to the American Hospital Association. Jamie's been involved in leadership, quality, and strategy issues for over 40 years, and since 1985 has worked with the hospital and system governing boards to strengthen their overall effectiveness and their oversight of strategy and quality. Jamie, welcome back to the program. It's uh, terrific to have you with us, and especially on times like right now where things seem to be changing on a daily basis with respect to board oversight of all these issues. So let me go right to it. Um, does the board of a hospital or health system have a real significant role to play still in helping their organizations deal with the pandemic and its aftermaths, or is that all over? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Michael. Pleasure to be with you. It's not all over. And so the answer to your question is, is an emphatic yes. Boards definitely have a role. And much of that role is reflected in the question that you asked is first to avoid the temptation of thinking that COVID is over. You know, we're going to be living with the implications of COVID for quite some time to come. And so perhaps one of the first roles of a board is to force themselves to keep their minds and their agendas open, both to be sensitive, to anticipate and prepare for the reverberations of COVID on their clinical operations and on their finances. But secondly, to learn the lessons, to make certain that we don't forget the lessons of the pandemic, but to learn them and incorporate them so we don't repeat the mistakes that we made with the pandemic. So I would say, unfortunately, even though no one wants to hear it, COVID is not over by a long shot. You know, I guess one of the related questions, Jamie, is how do you see the board getting involved with some of the guidance we've received from the federal government over the last, what, three, four weeks with the major shift in guidance from the CDC of uh, maybe three weeks ago and the more recent direction on mask wearing? And also, I guess we throw in there what the EEOC said about obligations or the ability of employers to obligate mask wearing. Does the board have a role in implementing or are these just management decisions? 
No, no, no. These are three very important and related issues, but definitely have governance implications based on the past behavior of the organization regarding previous approaches to mandates of vaccination, specifically, you know, mandate of flu vaccines, but then also being very sensitive to how the pandemic and the vaccination rates are playing out in their communities. So the, the first thing, let's talk about the CDC mass guidance. And unfortunately, as understandable as it is to ring the bell and declare the pandemic over, this is an example of something that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic, mixed messaging. Although the CDC didn't say it when they said you don't have to wear a mask in public if you're vaccinated, it's easy to interpret that as the pandemic is over and no one needs to wear a mask, even if you're not vaccinated. So a direct problem, and we're seeing that, a direct consequence of that is increasing rates of COVID hospitalization in communities that uh, don't have very high rates of vaccination. In fact, there are some uh, mostly rural health systems that experienced uh, Memorial Day COVID surges of hospitalized patients and patients on ventilators that exceeded the extent of their surges in the winter of 2020 and, and 2021. So, you know, so the mixed messaging is a problem and boards need to be very aware of this in terms of how it plays into what is happening in their communities and the service areas covered by their health systems. And they may find that they have to go in and mediate or modify the CDC message, which won't make them particularly popular, but they've got to be very aggressive in, in supporting uh, their executive and their clinical teams uh, to kind of interdigitate the federal message with what is happening at the local level. You know, this kind of goes to a point you and I have talked about uh, over the last couple of months, just on as we're kicking ideas around. There's been a lot of conversation this year, maybe in the last three months, about uh, corporate social responsibility, about the obligations of corporate executives and the companies to make social statements, to be responsive to political and social concerns that are going on that are roiling the general uh, world. Do board members, does corporate governance of a health system have some kind of obligation or expectation to weigh in on these issues of social disparities in terms of vaccinations, in terms of COVID exposure? Uh, can the board make statements? Can the board get out there or should it be out there on behalf of the corporation in, in pushing for public health uh, initiatives uh, or should they just stay silent in, on the assumption that that's not their role? Well, it's a it's a very you know important question, and so let me unpack it a little bit. Broadly, the answer is yes. Specifically, the answer is yes with an exclamation point. If the rhetoric of the organization has been population and community health, so presumably that would mean is if there if there is a hospital or a system somewhere in this country where they rejected the notion of population health or community health and said, we only take care of sick people who present themselves to our hospital and, and we exist independent from the community, then and only then might you make the argument that a board would be immune from the pressure to uh, you know, get engaged in, uh, you know, in ESG and social disparities, uh, as you've questioned. But the vast majority, if not the entirety of the, of the population of hospitals and health systems have been using the rhetoric of population health and community health. And for boards to not be front and center about speaking to those issues, about the disparity in, in access to healthcare services, access to telehealth, and now access to vaccinations, 
It is grossly inconsistent with the concept of population health and community health and wellness and exposes a leadership hypocrisy. Boards, at a minimum, cannot tolerate that hypocrisy. And, and I think more importantly, need to be aggressive, outspoken, invisible proponents of the notion of population health, community wellness, and then tailoring that message to the specific issues in their community. If it's vaccine hesitancy, or if it's reluctance to get vaccines, not because people are opposed to it, because they operate under the mistaken belief that they'll have to pay for it. And that's a really important point, Michael. One of the things we've learned from the pandemic is that one of the attempts to control costs prior to the pandemic by shifting risk to the patients in the form of high co-pays, high premium shares, and high deductibles, we now recognize actually, intentionally or not, was designed to impede a meaningful public health response in a pandemic. So boards need to recognize these kinds of things, and they need to make emphatic statements, perhaps stronger than they otherwise would uh, would have to do to kind of overcome the perceptions and the perspectives that were created because our, our past, and I would argue, misguided approaches uh, to transferring risk to patients. So for all of these reasons, the answer is yes. And, and there are others too, Michael. I mean, uh, many organizations talked population health and community health, but recognized to their chagrin, they had no ability to reach their communities or populations unless they were patients who had my charts. So, you know, so if all you're going to do is take care of your patients, that's not a problem. But if you're talking about taking care of your population and your community, that's a big problem. So, yeah, I think boards need to be front and center for all those reasons and to be able to be a trusted source of information to kind of moderate the mixed messaging from the federal government and the state governments on these issues. Uh, you know, Jamie, uh, I'm an Episcopalian, and we Episcopalians are famous for being strong in our faith, but not exactly excited about telling anybody about it. What do you tell the board member who says, we love our job, we enjoy monitoring management, but but we don't want to take any role in public proselytizing. We'll leave that to management. What do you have to say to that board chair who takes that position? Well, I would say that that's uh, leadership cowardice, because if you, you there's no problem letting management take the lead. But if you think there's not going to be pushback or public pressure, you're sadly mistaken. And if the board is not willing to be lockstep in support of management, it's going to you know, um, create a situation where management doesn't necessarily trust the board because it's a very short walk from what you've suggested to a, um, you know, the notion of a board telling its CEO, go ahead and do the right thing and we'll be there if the pressure comes. And then if the board's not willing to participate in the messaging, they're likely not going to be willing to participate in the support of the CEO when the pressure comes. So my argument is during these periods of, of, of great challenge, change, or pivoting, um, the, the board needs to be at a minimum willing to take the heat, which means that even if they're not in the lead role of providing the message, they have to be uh, willing to give top cover to their executives. And by that, I mean approving things which would otherwise be a management function, precisely so that if management comes under pressure or the clinical leaders come under pressure, the board can say, this was our idea. You know, this wasn't just management's idea. This was our idea, and we support management doing it. Doing it. So if you're uncomfortable or upset at this, be angry at us, not at management. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. And I would say more importantly, you know, as the kind of steward of the community asset, as most of whom are members of the community, it's much more powerful to have the message delivered by members of the community who have no kind of divided loyalties, because it's always 
possible to say that an executive or a clinical leader works for the institution and therefore is loyal to the institution. Board members who are not compensated, who don't, quote, work for the institution, uh, can, can be more easily seen as operating from a place of purity in the messaging. So, and there are many more reasons. But yeah, I think boards need to step into this void at least to give unwavering support uh, to management if management is going to be the primary carrier of this message. Well, you know, if you buy into the the concept of this increased uh, board profile on issues like this, which which I agree with you, I, um, what's the role of the medical staff? Where are they, aren't they kind of waving their hands in the background and say, "Boys and girls, these are our issues. Let us be the spokesman." How do you balance the meaningful role of the medical staff, which has been at the front lines in messaging these issues? Well, very similar response to the first question. Number one, many of the issues that are clinical should come from the medical staff. So when we were in the throes of the pandemic, rationing criteria, other issues like that, clearly. But once again, issues which previously might not have been appropriate to come to the board level are useful to come to the board for approval to give support to the clinician. So I'd say that's number one. Number two is you're exactly right. The clinical leader should be involved in this messaging. And so weaving together a leadership message where the leaders are arm in arm with no daylight between them. So there is one message coming from uh, clinical leadership, executive management, and board leadership is very important these days. So I think, I think once again, the concept of the board saying, we want to hear from you. We want to give you a platform. We want this to be approved at a board level for top cover. Now let's figure out how we stitch this messaging together so that we can give a consistent and common and needed theme to our particular population. How are you looking at the composition of health system and hospital boards now post-pandemic? Or at this point, is there any impact? Is your advice altered in any way? Is it is it business as usual? I mean that in the context of broader diversity themes, or are you seeing specific changes that you're recommending as a direct result of the experience of the last 18 to 20 months? Well, I think it accelerates the previous recommendation, which is boards need to be you know, aggressive in seeking diversity on the board. And one of the lessons from the pandemic was, you know, the unequal distribution of assets and the the unequal ability for a health system to reach its various communities. So I'm familiar with some rural systems who were aggressively pushing on telehealth, some of whom had very rural residents who were members of their board, others who did not. The ones who did immediately learned a very powerful message, which is uh, not everyone in the community has equal access to the internet, that in rural environments and in you know, in, in inner city communities of color, access to the internet cannot be taken for granted. Now, as obvious as that message, message seems, it was the health system boards who had members of those communities on the board who immediately had to confront that issue you know, at, at the beginning, whereas the health system boards who didn't have that level of diversity, even though that information was percolating somewhere in the bowels of the organization, it didn't it didn't penetrate to the level of governance and therefore didn't make it into, you know, the uh, the strategic initiatives about how to uh, make telehealth um, uh, uh, equally accessible to everybody or how to how to each, uh, reach everybody. So I think the lesson from the pandemic has been diversity is crucially important for the reasons we understood it before, not to be representative of the community served, not to, re- you know, you don't want a board which is composed based on a formula of X percent of our population comes from this group and Y percent comes from that group. 
But the fundamental lesson of diversity, Michael, is that diverse boards make better decisions than homogenous boards. Diverse boards are, are forced, just as an example I just gave, to confront issues from different perspectives and look at issues through different lenses. And there is very compelling research that shows that that will make a board make better decisions and be more responsive than a board that doesn't do that because they're primarily homogenous. Jamie, I follow the uh, management principle of if you can erase that email, the issue no longer exists. If we get to July 4th and meet the, and it really works actually quite well. If we get to July 4th and we meet the president's goals, can we effectively erase that pandemic email and move forward freely? Well, I wish, but the answer is no. And, and so this raises a really important governance issue that goes back to the, the questioning at the opening of this conversation. Can boards flip a switch and declare the pandemic over? We all want to do that, but the, the emphatic answer is no. You know, we're, we've got to avoid the, the temptation, however sed- seductive it is, to think about, you know, that, that COVID will be over, uh, like flipping a light switch. Uh, there are going to be several significant different areas where COVID and its implications persist and have implications both for society and for healthcare systems. Probably the first and most obvious of these is the issue of long COVID or PASC, post-acute uh, syndrome COVID, where as many as 30% of people diagnosed with COVID have very debilitating symptoms of fatigue, brain fog, and the like. And um, these can persist for uh, months, if not years. And in fact, just recently, we've identified another issue, another syndrome, uh, POTS, P-O-T-S, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And many long-haul COVID sufferers develop this syndrome. And one of the great problems with this is there are fewer than 100 physicians in the country who specialize in treating that syndrome. So we're going to have a persistent debilitating disease profile which I personally believe will rival polio in terms of its impact of a disability effect on American society and on the American healthcare systems. The second issue is actually probably more worrisome, and that is the acute challenges of COVID. And there's some very worrisome data, which now unfortunately is being corroborated. It first came out of the United Kingdom in a study in the first surge of COVID where A study was done of 47,000 patients who had been admitted to the hospital with COVID, recovered and were successfully discharged. And what this study found was that within uh, three months, 29% of them were readmitted to the hospital and, and frequently for disease conditions they did not have prior to COVID, and 12% of them died. You know, so now we're starting to see that same kind of data replicated, unfortunately, in the United States. A recent study done uh, by Northwestern in Chicago found that 20% of patients who had been discharged from the hospital uh, recovering from COVID were readmitted to the hospital during four months, and and 12% of those returned within 30 days. And 40% of the people who were readmitted once again had conditions which they didn't have prior to COVID. So huge implications, not the least of which is financial, Michael, because one of the things that boards need to be aware of is all of these readmissions are for poorly reimbursed medical conditions, you know, neurological conditions, stroke, dementia, migraines, kidney disease, liver disease, heart disease. And and so it's possible that we're going to see reverberating readmissions 
for poorly reimbursed medical conditions that are directly related to COVID for some very, very long time to come. And those are just two examples. Uh, you know, there are many other, but we've got to avoid the temptation of putting COVID in the rearview mirror just because we want to. And we need to do what, what good boards do, which is say, what are the potential long-term implications of this on our communities, on our finances, and then how do we prepare ourselves to, you know, to mitigate those? Well, Jamie, let it never be said that these governing health podcasts are in a bright ray of sunshine <laughs> everybody's day. But Sorry. That's okay, because I think the other question I was going to ask you in this is, to what extent must boards ask the question about the fall, about the potential autumnal surge, about, you know, not to, not to posit conspiracy theories, but we, there is this undercurrent of conversation. How deep should the board get into those kinds of issues? Uh, the preparation, the, the boomerang effect. Is it just simply asking the question of management and, and clinical leadership, or is it more aggressively saying, no, we want to see action here? Uh, what would your recommendation be? More aggressive, I think. I think, and you used one of the words, but one of the key issues here is is anticipation and preparedness. The notion of a fall surge is is not possible. It is likely, and you know, as examples, the CDC has basically given up on the concept of herd immunity. So, if we're not going to have herd immunity, COVID won't go away. And many health systems now are seeing completely different profiles of COVID admissions, where you know the age range is between thirty to age forty nine. So if you have a if you're on a board and you have a population uh, in you know in the areas you serve that has a high degree of, of vaccine hesitancy or for whatever reason you know a, a significant portion and by that I mean anything more than 25 percent of your population is not getting vaccinated you can bank on uh, on a surge you can bank on another surge so now the question is how are you going to deal with that not just financially but also in terms of the pressure on staff. You know, in, in, in terms of uh, not forgetting the lessons that you just learned a few months ago. So, yes, I think anticipation and preparedness is is a core issue that boards need to embrace, especially as it relates to COVID and not just fall back and assume that it will be taken care of and also not be persuaded by understandable but false comments that might come from clinical leaders or management. Oh, we, don't worry. You know, this is like riding a bike. Uh, so if it happens again, we'll be ready for it. It's remarkable how quickly we can forget lessons that were learned. So I think this is one of the most important challenges for boards is to force themselves to think the unthinkable and to anticipate and prepare for what is a very likely event. Well, staying on that theme, Jamie, before we wrap up, there, there are, I suspect, a lot of lessons learned by uh, our respective clients about the vaccine distribution system and the uh, the, the vaccination programs and supply demand logistics from this spring. My understanding is that the science on the need for boosters is not resolved at this point. Are, is there a role for the board in anticipating the possibility of booster vaccinations in the fall or winter? And what should they be doing now based on lessons learned to prepare for that? Or again, is that something to say, hey, we'll ask the question, but that's really in the hands of our clinicians and our management team? Well, I would say that the, the first question you asked, yes, the, the board can, as long as it alerts management and clinical leaders that they want them to monitor it and maybe have it be a dashboard, you know, because that's one of the things 
the need for boosters will be determined on a month by month basis because it's still possible that antibody levels could drop off a cliff at a certain time period for those who've been vaccinated. So I would say board should say to management, keep an eye on it. And we'd like to see that as an indicator or alert us to that. The second issue in terms of broader lessons learned, I think is more, you know, more in the wheelhouse of the board. And I think one of the core lessons learned is very, very broadly and strategically, a just-in-time in focus means there is no just-in-case capability to respond. And we learned that the hard way. So that's a lesson that boards cannot forget. So at a minimum, boards need to keep contingency plans and a little bit of just-in-case excess inventory and redundancy you know, so that they can build resiliency in their systems, even if it costs them short-term you know, uh, economic efficiency. Otherwise, uh, if that happens again, we could be, we could be caught short because many of, this in, uh, of these infrastructures for vaccine distribution are being um, folded up and put away. Um, so it's not like you can just recreate that capacity at, at snap of the fingers. You have to go through the same steps you went through, bring out the National Guard, talk with your public health officials, figure out how to store the vaccine. You know, maybe the distribution channels will be fresh in people's minds. But if we're not careful, it could completely go away. So if boards say, all right, now it's over, we need to financially recover. So put every ounce of our energy in terms of economic recovery. They're going to unconsciously go back to a just in time mentality where no inefficiency will be tolerated. And, and the problem is, if you want to have a just in case capability, you have to be willing to tolerate some degree of inefficiency. So boards need to talk about this and figure out how they're going to choose to thread that needle. Otherwise, the pendulum is just going to go back to the just in time efficiency, you know, kind of quadrant and leave us horribly exposed if we do need boosters or uh, if there is another surge or another public health issue which emerges. So I think it's that second point very, very much in the wheelhouse of boards. And would you say that this is a prime topic if a board or its management team or, or staff leadership was going to take a public position? Is this a message that should be or could be effectively shared publicly now? Yes, I think engaging the public in a broader perspective of, you know, what what happened, you know, why were we not as prepared as we thought we should have been? And what are we doing now to make certain that we're going to be more prepared in the future? And here's what we need from you, uh, I think, is a very important dialogue and also could go a long way toward increasing vaccination rates. Uh, to the point where that might then uh, prevent a fall surge, as we discussed a few moments ago. So by all means, I think here's a wonderful opportunity to take something which is still fresh in people's minds and, and try to make sense of it with the community. Jamie, last question. I think you've made some fantastic points, and I know our listeners are going to be taking notes assiduously on this. But it's it's a question of, a, I guess, a dual question, bandwidth and priority. I can see a situation where a board chair is listening to us today and sits back and says, you know, that's all well and good, but my chief financial officer has presented me with 16 different recommendations that he's been holding on to for the last 18 months that he wants board approval for. We only have so much time. We only have so many meetings. We only meet with managers so many times. We've, we've dedicated the last 18 months to the pandemic. Shouldn't we put our business resilience first and foremost, and we'll come back to these what ifs, these you're mentioning, Jamie, later on when we have time, if we have time? Well, that, that's tempting, but the emphatic answer is no, because the way you presented it, and I, I know you did this 
you know, for heuristic reasons, but is as an either or. And it needs to be a both and. And that's the real challenge for governance. From a generative perspective, how can we consider both of those questions, which seem to be at odds with one another? How can we consider them simultaneously? How do we maintain the, the lessons uh, learned from the pandemic with the rush to revenue and the rush to recovery and consider them in relationship to one another so that we can start trying to figure out, is there a way to do both? And if we don't force ourselves to confront that ambiguity, then it will turn into an either or question, as you've suggested. And then we will gravitate back toward normal operations and normal focus, which will leave us open to being blindsided by issues which we have discussed in this podcast, which are not possible, but actually very likely. So I think it's, and that's really the role of the board, you know, to, to hold two opposing ideas in the board's mind at the same time and try to make sense out of it. Now, so now is a time, you know, to your question, is this really the role of the board? This is completely the role of the board and only the role of the board. And now is the time for sense making. Now is the time to say to management, you guys know how to run the business, run the business. You know, you, you guys know how to recover. So start doing what you think we need to do to recover. We're going to pull back a little bit and try to make sense out of this and then come back to you and engage you. And then we're going to try to figure out how to do both of these issues, you know, both of these things together, which seem to be uh, contradictory. Jamie, I think these are fantastic messages. I, I think you've hit all the bases of, of issues that, that have to be addressed in the boardroom. And I think your, uh, from my perspective, your comments really serve as a, as a fascinating agenda for board discussion and the role of the board in today's health system. Thanks so very much for sharing your thoughts with us and for coming by again today. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much. As Jamie and I have discussed today, Boards have a critical role to play in effectively overseeing their hospitals and health systems during and especially, as Jamie notes, after the pandemic. And they must give careful thought to how their role is different, as well as the different issues and challenges they will continue to face as we move beyond the current level of pandemic affectation. The general counsel can be a critical advisor to board leadership, as Jamie noted, in this regard, pointing out how the board chair and other board officers can help the board orient itself to a longer-term coexistence with pandemic-related issues. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for being with us. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.